Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, guess where you can turn it? Genesis 1. Genesis 1. Hey, welcome to uh, first week of our Satan Hates Genesis 1 series. This is a five-week series, a lot in it. I'm excited to get it kicked off this morning and equally excited for the next four weeks as well as we really take today as kind of a setup to the series and then uh, we'll hammer out the points that I bring up today uh, over the next four weeks as well and we really dive in to this series. The, the idea for this series came a couple of months ago when we were meeting as a church and I kind of said something out loud about how uh, it seems like Satan is just attacking everything that was written in Genesis 1. And there was a series in there that I knew we wanted to do at some point. And then we gave it a cool little title and here we are this morning. And what I want to do is look at the very beginning, because when we see the beginning, we can understand how the rest is supposed to unfold. Remember back in a day, it was a while ago, but there were movie theaters and people would go to them and they would watch movies. You remember this? And sometimes uh, you would show up to the movie late. And I remember doing this and showing up to the movie. I was a little bit late and I sat down and I watched the movie with a group of people that uh, had been, that I was with, but they had gotten there on time. We got to the end of the movie and they said, what did you think? And I said, that was horrible. Like, that was, that was as bad as most Will Ferrell movies. Like, it was not very good. And we were having this conversation, and they were like, I loved it. That was fantastic. And, and so then we started dialoguing a little bit, and here's what I realized. The first 10 minutes of that particular movie were really, really important. And since I had missed the first 10 minutes of the movie, the rest of it didn't grip me. I didn't understand the story. I didn't know what I was missing. And so I thought it was a horrible movie. It didn't make sense. And they loved it because they understood the beginning. The Bible, it's a long book, but it tells us a story. A story like all good stories that begins in the beginning. If we don't understand the beginning of the story, then the rest of the story won't make any sense. If we don't understand the foundation, to use another metaphor, that God laid out at the very beginning, then everything that's built up after it, we won't understand. And it's not just God who knows this, and that's why he laid it out this way, but Satan also knows this, and this is in part why Satan hates Genesis 1, because trapped between his past rebellion and his future judgment, Satan's new aim now is to undermine the foundation that God has laid out so that he can kill, seek, and destroy, which is what he does. And so the enemy... Now, Satan, without a future glory to behold, his best use of time, as the apostle Peter would write it, is to roam the earth looking to see who he can destroy. Now, let me be very clear at the beginning of this series. When I say Satan today, I'm not talking about the force when I say Satan throughout this series, I'm not talking about like a cosmic evil that kind of exists. 
Now, when I say Satan, I am talking about a being that is person-like as God is person-like who rebelled against God and then sought to take out the punishment of his rebellion on humanity. A being with a brain, with power, with followers, who hates Genesis 1 and all that it stands for and hates you and wants to destroy you. Now, that's where the series is headed. But let's start where all good stories start. In the beginning. And in Genesis chapter one, God lays it out when he says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God was staking claim over creation. Not that he needed to, because without him doing it, it would have never existed. Imagine the author of a book, writing the book. The book wouldn't have existed had the author not written the book. Creation wouldn't have existed had God not decided that it needed to exist. But when God created, right in the beginning in verse two, we see this, that the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It's as if the spirit was anxious, ready to be let out and it's just hovering there. But the darkness is also present. See, right at the beginning of the story, God is writing in what the tension is going to be for all of time, the chaos and the disorder of the darkness, but the spirit hovering, ready to move. Verse three then, God says, teaching us something incredibly valuable, that when God speaks, things happen. Proverbs 35 says it this way, every word of the Lord proves true. We say it like this, the Bible is as relevant today as the day that it was written, that God's word holds power. And so the first thing that God spoke, things happened. A principle that rings true to this day, when God speaks, things happen. And God said, let there be light. God created the enemy of this darkness. The rest of the story, by the way, is gonna be this big battle between light and darkness. It's the same battle that you and I face today in our own hearts, our own minds, and our own souls between darkness and light. And so God spoke into existence, let there be light. And guess what? There was light. There was And God saw that the light was good because when God creates, it's good. And when God speaks, it's good. And God's way is always good. And God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness because light and darkness can't coexist. Take off your bumper sticker. Light and darkness can't coexist. Light always pushes out darkness. The next verses, verses five through verses 25, explains then how God went about creating the earth. Six literal days of creation. And you might say, well, the Bible's not a science book. No, it isn't. 
And it doesn't speak to everything that there is to know about science, but everything that it does say about science is true. Starting right at the beginning, that in six days, God could speak and create all of this into existence. Verses five through 25, he just lays out how he did it. And there's almost this like artistic build to it. The beauty of creation and then living things and then, uh, and then the animals. And then he gets to verse 26. And by the way, and through all of that, what God is showing is that even though there is chaos and disorder in the darkness, there is order and goodness and a plan in God's creation. Then in verse 26, God shows off. See, verses 5 through 25, what uh, God had been explaining is how every kind will bear more of its kind. That's the pattern of verses 5 through 25. But then we get to verse 26, and God says, well, what about our kind? Then God said, let us make man in our image, a doctrinal term that we often refer to as the imago Dei. I'll speak into that more next week. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let's make one after our kind. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so the pinnacle of his creation, God creates humanity in his image giving us a picture, an understanding then better of what might God be like. Well, God was saying, look at perfect humanity. It'll give you a bit of an understanding of what God is like. Now, in all of these, in this opening chapter of Genesis, there are three important truths that we can pull out of Genesis chapter one. There's more, but there's three that I'm going to pull out this morning that I think are really important for us to understand. And then after I point out those truths, what I want to do is just show how Satan has uh, gone about attacking each and every one of them. And uh, then over the next four weeks, what I'll do is I'll, I'll laser in onto some of these and we'll talk about how Satan is specifically attacking some of those points. But here are the three. Right from the beginning is this, that God is the creator. God's the author of the story. God wrote the book. That means you are not. That means I am not. I am a character in a story. And guess what? I'm not the main character. And neither are you. No, God was the creator and he wrote the story and you and I thinking we're God is like a character in a story looking at the author and going, I'm better than you. And the author just has to go, delete, delete, delete. God is the creator. And because God is the creator and because we're made in his image and in his likeness, there is something uh, imprinted now on our hearts. Ecclesiastic writer wrote that there is eternity written on our hearts. That there's, there's like this, this thing in us that longs to be with God, the one who created and formed us. Uh, but how we say it most often here is that there's something in us that longs to worship him. 
Like as the creator, as the one who wrote us into existence, as the one who formed us and breathed his life into us, that we wouldn't be here unless he did that. The rightful response then almost, hear me out, almost as an obligation is simply to say, I worship you. I worship you. For I would not exist if it were not for you. And so God is the creator. And, and now because he is, there's like this almost as if it's an obligation to worship the one who formed me. Oh, but God is so much better than that. So much better than just forming us and saying, worship me. Oh no, God, he shows us in the rest of the story like he did in verse three when he created the light and he called it good and he shows us in the rest of the story that not only is God creator, but God is good. And God has a good plan in place. When he saw the darkness, when he saw the chaos of it, he spoke something into it to bring order out of the chaos, to bring good out of the, the void. And so we, don't, we learn here, not just that God is good, but, uh, sorry, that God is creator, but that God is good and his plan is good. God's plan is good. God's plan for all of things is good. It, it means that we, we aren't just obligated to worship him. Now we step in and we realize, oh, you made me specifically to, uh, um, to experience you and to experience joy. And the best way to do that is to follow the plan that you have laid out because you're good. And so God is creator. And so I'm like obligated to worship him, but God is good and God has a good plan. So I want to worship him. I want to worship the one who has designed me. Satan hates Genesis 1 because it lays out the plan of how God wants humanity to flourish. And God knows that humanity most flourishes and experiences the deepest type of joy when it honors him. And Satan hates it because it lays out the plan. God is creator, but God is also good, and his plan is good. Oh, and we ought to embrace that good and perfect plan. And then we get to those famous verses, right, when God created man in his own image, and we see a third truth about God, that we were created in his own image. You probably love your cat. Actually, you probably don't love your cat. You just have it for some reason. You probably love your dog. Amen. I don't have a dog. I don't know why I amened. I had a biology teacher in high school who would always make the joke, oh, yeah, because pets are people too. And he was making a little joke. And I, listen, you can love your pet. That's great. That's cool. It's awesome. Man and man alone is made in the image of God. Man and man alone. And because we're made in the image of God, there's an intrinsic value that is bestowed upon us. It's not something that we have to earn. It's not something that we have to go grab or capture or prove. There is a value in every human being because they are made in the image of God. Universal dignity, universal love for humanity, that is a Christian, biblical ideal. Why? Because the image of God exists in every single person. 
So every person is valuable. Every life is important. God created humanity in his own image. So these three truths are evident in Genesis chapter one. God is creator. Uh, What else can I do but worship him? God is good and his plan is good. I want to worship him. God made me in his own image. Now I want to operate and act like him. I have value because I'm like him. And humanity is more like him than any other created thing. What could possibly go wrong? Ah, Satan hates Genesis 1. He hates it. Because there it was, God's perfect plan for humanity to flourish and experience joy. To go about the earth with purposeful work, with intrinsic value, with a solid identity. Everything Satan didn't have, who was not created in the image of God. And so he rebelled, and Satan has one primary tactic. One primary tactic. Lies. Jesus called him the father of lies. And from the beginning, Satan's primary strategy has been to get people to believe lies. In fact, at the very beginning, Satan engages in this conversation with woman, and he begins to question what God really said. He uses a deceptive tactic to get Eve to begin to doubt the goodness of God's plan. And it is the same strategy that Satan uses this day to get people to doubt the goodness of God's plan. The psalmist wrote it this way. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Satan's plan is to come in and to undermine the entire foundation so that the whole thing crumbles. And how might we know if Satan's plan is working? Death, despair, division, depression, anger, bitterness. These are the indications that Satan's plan is working. And when they exist in our world, it is the sign that the lie is being believed. Those things are on him, on him and the lies that he has spread. And so what did Satan do? He just began to attack all of the truths. There's a letter that was written to some of the early Christians. And it was the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter, and he wrote a lot of letters to early Christians. This one was to a particular group of Christians and Colossians. And so uh, in Colossians 2, verse 8, Paul warns the Christians with these words, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, and get this, and empty deceit. Every deceit of Satan is empty, by the way. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits, that's a reference to Satan and his powers, of the world and not according to Christ, that any belief, any philosophy, any theory that is apart from what Christ says is an attack by the enemy to destroy, to bring havoc on a world and a people that God loves. And so Paul warns him, he says, guys, don't give into it. It will only lead to despair. And so Satan then just started. God is the creator. That was the first truth. So what's the first lie? No, he isn't. God is the creator? Nope, no, he's not. 
Or in our culture, it's more like this. Nope, creation is random. And, and Satan will use whatever means and has used whatever means possible that he can to expand his lies. He'll use books and he'll use media and he'll use celebrity and he'll use woke pastors and he'll use all sorts of different things to spread his lies and to get people to begin to believe the lie. To believe the lie. In our own culture, all he had to do is get this idea of evolutionary theory into our brains. That creation was random. That there wasn't a purpose or an intention behind it. That God didn't actually create, that it all came from nowhere. And so God uses a, a little theory, a little theory that if you look at it all, is just based on uh, um, poor science and like racist undertones in it. And this theory, evolutionary theory, then creeps its way into our schools, creeps its way into our culture. And the more it does, have we gotten more unified or divided? More divided. More death more diminishing of the value of human life through um, the genocide of abortion. Over and over, Satan uses this then, and he uses it as a new foundation. Instead of the foundation that God created, this is the foundation that Satan has created, and then all of his lies begin to be based off of that. Devaluing human life. Dividing us instead of uniting us as God had originally intended. And then, as that lie crept through and into our culture, as it crept into the human heart, we, under the weight of sin now, in a world that is built on a faulty foundation, humanity now is prone to do exactly what Paul warned about or noticed that was happening to the Christians in Rome. In his opening part of his letter to the Romans, maybe the, one of the most famous letters ever written. Romans one twenty five. Paul says this, because they exchanged the truth about God. What truth? That he is the creator, that his plan is good, and that he made man in his own image. Because they exchanged that truth about God for a lie. What lie? That creation is random, that God isn't good, that his plan can't be trusted, that humanity is no different than the other beings. They exchanged the truth for the lie, and because they did, they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. See, humanity has to worship. Humanity has to worship something. There has to be a desire of the heart. There has to be a foundation of the heart because that's how God created us. And when we exchange believing the true foundation that God is creator and we fell on the false foundation that God isn't creator, then we just naturally begin to worship other things. And what Paul says we began to worship is ourselves we begin to worship ourselves. We make ourselves like the author of our own little story. I mean, imagine, it's like Inception. <laughs> imagine a book where the book is about a guy who's writing a book. But the guy in the story writing the book thinks that his book is better than the guy writing the book. Now, the guy writing the book inside of the book can only write the book because the other guy wrote the book about the guy writing the book. So God, well, humanity exchanges the truth 
for the lie. And after humanity exchanges the truth for the lie, then Satan's like, oh, I'm in now. And so then what? Then he attacks the second truth. God is good and his plan is good. And the second lie that begins to emerge is what? God is bad and his plan is bad. God is bad and his plan is bad. And so the enemy began to get people, Christians and non-Christians both, to begin to believe that God is not good and God can't be trusted. And uh, one of his new lies is, well, go read the Old Testament. Is that the kind of God that you want, right? And he begins to, to try to undermine the idea that God is good and when he exchanges it with God is bad, right? Or, and because God is bad, then his plan must be bad. And so God said, men and women exist in this beautiful complementarian state, but Satan infuses confusion into the order and then tension arises for all of time. God said that biblical or godly sexuality is between man and a woman in marriage and that any sexual encounter outside of man and woman in marriage is not the way that God designed it, but culture steps in and says, whoever, wherever, whenever, why ever. God said that power is about serving people. Satan says power is about conquering people. God said there is one race and there's this beauty in, in the diversity of humanity and cultural differences and all of that, but there's one race and we're united under Christ. Oh, Satan shows up and says, no, the color of our skin and the melanin count should be the thing that divides us the most. And everywhere that God had created good and perfect, Satan steps in and says, nope, I got a better plan. And let me tell you, God's plan is always better than Satan's plan. And God's plan is always better than your plan because your plan is Satan's plan. They're the same. They're the same. Because it's not the truth. Because it's a lie. And God's plan is always better. And so he uses, the enemy does every tactic possible to spread this stuff. And it gets so in deep. And the deeper it gets, the more harmful it gets. And the more despair and division and uh, depression that it brings. And it wreaks havocs on families and people and cultures and a world. And none of this was what God designed he created perfection. He created something for humanity to flourish. And even though Satan came in and his lies began to take root, God so loved the world that he looked in and said, and I'm going to do something about it. He wasn't going to leave us to our own devices. God always has a plan. He always has a plan. Romans, that letter that I read from earlier, reminds us of this. See, as man began to choose God's, or I'm sorry, Satan's plan, something happened in man. Doctrinally, we understand this term as original sin, that we are now born in sin. We're still made in the image of God, but the image is now marred by the weight and the guilt of sin. And so now we sit under the weight of sin Right? We're still made in the image, so there's still value. So even in the, um, the, uh, the quote, worst of sinners, end quote, right, that, 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 that there's still the image of God in them. And so we still value human life. And we still love all people. 
We still have a desire for all because they're made in the image of God. But then all of us are now marred. The image of God is marred because of the weight of sin. We had an original righteousness. Sin broke into the world. And now we're born with an original sin. Paul wrote it this way. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. And as it is easy and common to say, if you don't believe original sin, just hang out with a 14-month-old. You can borrow mine. And sin comes in and it distorts the perfection and the beauty of what God created. Instead of intrinsic value, now we try to earn our value. And it's exhausting and unfulfilling. Instead of an identity built around who God says I am, we now try to build false identities around self-centeredness and success. Instead of absolute truth, we suffer under a shifting standard, always wondering what is true? What's true now? What will be true in 100 years? What will be true in five years? Instead of having family, as God beautifully designed it in the garden. Oh, it's been so broken and distorted. And all of these things have only led to despair. And all of creation and all of humanity then longed for something. Longed for what? We call it redemption. Longed for, said another way, new creation. In the midst of the weight of sin, now broken into the world, God acted. And in the same way that God acted in the beginning when he uh, created humanity in the first place, God acted again. And he forged a path to a new beginning. You see, well, where do we see the beginning of that story? Actually, we see it right in the Genesis account. It says, if God knew, in Genesis 1, he created. Now God was going to form a new creation. In Genesis 2, there was this battle between darkness and the spirit of God hovering. And now God was going to send a light right into the midst of the darkness. In fact, the apostle John writes a letter and he starts it off with these words. In the beginning was the word. Jesus was there from the very beginning, right from the beginning. God knew what he was going to have to do, and Jesus was already present there, ready to go when he was needed. And so Jesus then steps down into the darkness. See, all of creation, another story tells us, was actually pointing us to Jesus. And Jesus steps down into the darkness, but Jesus actually takes it a step farther. He doesn't just step down into our darkness. Jesus actually goes to the cross and he takes all of the darkness upon himself. All of the despair, all of the death, all of the division, all of the divide, everything that had ruined humanity, Jesus goes to the cross and he takes it all upon himself. Why? So that you and I now might become a new 
creation so that we might get back what Satan stole. And if you read carefully your New Testament, you're going to see that all of the authors are constantly referring back to the very beginning and how we were originally designed and created. They're saying the human heart still longs for what it had in the garden, but the human heart could never arrive at that at, by itself. And so it needed someone who would come and give it to us. Oh, and we have one, Jesus, who then moves from heaven to earth, from light into darkness, goes to the cross, takes the darkness on himself so that you and I could walk in the freedom of the light. Satan stole our value, purpose, and identity. Jesus gave it back on the cross. Satan distorted God's perfect plan. Jesus gave us a new plan, life by his spirit. Satan destroyed God's created order. Jesus is redeeming that order through salvation and through his church and through a final coming redemption one day. And all that was lost will be fully redeemed by Christ. And so what, what do we do in the meantime? What do we do as, uh, as we now exist in this world where we are marred images, but still made in the image of God? What do we do? The first thing we do is we embrace the gospel. We embrace the gospel, the full truth, for it was Christ himself who said that only the truth will set you free. We embrace the gospel and we receive a new identity, a new value, and a new purpose. It is a much less exhausting way to go through life, my friends, instead of trying to earn back our value, identity, and purpose, simply receiving it from what Christ has done on the cross, and then we are restored with the same value, identity, and purpose that we would have originally had had sin never entered in. And it is a beautiful thing to receive this. Paul says, when you become it, look at the words he uses. He says, you become a new creation. A new creation. What's he pointing to? He said, it's like you go back to the beginning. Like before Satan's lies took over, before all of the despair, and it's not to say that life will now be perfect because it certainly will not. There will still be difficulty and there will still be hard times in life, but that which was lost, your soul will be restored and redeemed through what Christ has done for paying the penalty of sin, for resurrecting from the grave and for bringing now new life. So we embrace, embrace the gospel. We embrace being made a new creation again. That's the first thing we do. The second thing we do, because it is, as I said earlier, our hearts are prone to wander. That even as we are in Christ, the enemy does not stop his attack. In fact, much of the New Testament is the writing of Paul explaining to us what we do in the midst of the attack. And so the second thing that we begin to do is we don't fall prey to Satan's lies about anything anymore. And we embrace God's plan and his perfect plan for life. We hold on to the statement that the Bible is as relevant today as the day that it was written. We remember Proverbs 35 that says that every word of God proves true. 
See, in that psalm passage that I mentioned earlier, where the foundations are, uh, are taken out by the enemy's lies, it shows us in that psalm passage that there are two responses to the enemy's lies. One is to flee, to flee from the enemy's lies, right? Uh, and what it means by that is to flee from the truth and then to be taken under by the enemy and to begin to believe in the lies and to let the foundation of our lives be ripped right out from underneath us. That's one tactic. But then verse four tells us another tactic, and that is when the foundation is being attacked, instead of looking at ourselves, we look back up to him and we keep our eyes fixed on the one who wrote the story in the first place. And then as you continue to read through it, you see that the first tactic is to flee or to give in. The second then is to fight. Is to fight. And to stand firm in faith. And we live in a culture and in an era right now where it has become increasingly easy to flee and to run from truth, to give in to the lies of the enemy. And the scripture is very, very clear that every time we give in to the lies of the enemy, it will lead to death, despair, division, depression, and every other bad D word you can think of. But we... We are a new creation and we don't have to give in to that because we, as a new creation, carry the power of the spirit of the living God inside of us. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, in other words, even though we're still human, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. You cannot fight spiritual battles solely in the flesh. You might look at someone right now that you know who's believing the lie and you think there's a practical thing I can do. There might be, but there's a heart battle going on underneath. We are not waging war according to the flesh for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but our weapons have divine power to destroy strongholds. What strongholds? The lies of the enemy. We destroy arguments. What arguments? What arguments do we destroy? We destroy the argument that God is not the creator. We destroy the argument that God's plan isn't good. We destroy the argument that God's plan is outdated. We destroy the argument that humanity doesn't have intrinsic value because it just randomly showed up and so all things are equal. We destroy every single one of them. And how do we do that? By proclaiming and standing on the truth of God's word. And maybe you say, well, this doesn't apply anymore. This doesn't apply anymore. It's 2021. God's plan is outdated. God's plan doesn't work anymore. Isaiah 48, the word of our God stands forever. Forever. It's the word of God will transcend every new Harvard press release, okay? It will transcend every president, every Congress, and every Supreme Court decision. It does not bow to governments. It does not change with culture. It is as relevant today as the day it was written in every place and in every life. Don't believe the lie. And then... 
Nehemiah chapter four, verse 14, tells us what, we're, what we get to do as followers of Christ in times like this. And just in case you've been listening to some pastors who need to repent and stop talking, we are not afraid to fight and die on the hill of biblical truth. The moment that the church, which is labeled by Timothy and Paul as the pillar and the buttress of the truth, as the thing that is supposed to hold the line, the moment it gives in, then God's plan of redemption goes to sleep. And the world doesn't need a sleeping plan. It needs one that is awake and is ready to fight for the truth of God's word. And so Nehemiah writes this. He says, and I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Do not be afraid of those who would say that God's word isn't true anymore. Do not be afraid of those who will try to twist the scriptures to make it be something in 2021 that it has never been for 2,000 years. Do not believe that. Do not be afraid of them. Who cares what they comment on your Facebook? Who cares about the letters they sent us in the mail? Doesn't matter. There is only one path to freedom, and that is true. So we're not afraid. And then he goes on to say this, remember the Lord, remember his truth. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. You know what it's saying? You know what it's saying to those of us who want to bow? You know what it's saying to those who are still so arrogant in their pride that they think that their way is better? They're saying, you, you will bow you will bow to the great and awesome God because you're not great. You're not awesome. You are a character in a story and he is the one who wrote it. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Oh, and the world in its pride will mock. They will mock. They will mock him. And they will mock us. And our reply, when they do, can only be, oh, I love you. Throw whatever stone, say whatever word, do whatever you must to make yourself feel better. But I love you. And I will not stop speaking the truth because your eternity means more than whatever you can do to me right now. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And then he ends with this, and fight, and fight, fight. It is a battle. Truth is our weapon. Fight, and he just lists it out. He says, fight for your brothers, fight for your sons, fight for your daughters, fight for your wives, fight for your homes, fight for what God has given you, fight that truth would be preserved, fight that scripture would carry on, fight that the gospel would never go out, fight that the church would always stand, fight that salvation would still go out, because if we don't, then who will? So we embrace the gospel 
and we embrace the fight. And then what do we do? We embrace God's plan of redemption, partnering with those who believe as we do, advancing the gospel and laying down our lives. And as the great apostles did, running to the world and sharing the truth of the gospel, regardless of how it is mocked or received. And simply saying, he loves you and he designed you and he created you and Satan's plan is set on destroying you. But God's plan is good because he is good. Oh, and when they look back and say, but why do you get so angry? Why do you get so passionate? Because we have all seen the despair that sin has wrought on our world and justice would demand that we fight back, take back what the enemy has stolen. And as much as we have seen the despair of this world, the life that awaits after is that much worse. And those who do not bow to the name of Jesus on this life will sit under the reign and the dominion of Satan for the next one. And to that, I will yell, I will fight, and we will carry on. Let's pray. So Father, we start asking ourselves to embrace the gospel again. And Father, for those who are here who have never embraced the gospel, never forsaken their own plan, sought forgiveness for their own sin, right now where you're at, that's step one. We'll teach you how to fight later. Right now, just embrace the gospel. Release Satan's grip and step into the family of God whose love and grace pours out, who begins to redeem and restore the very perfect plan that he originally created. Jesus took your sins on the cross. You're forgiven believe in Christ. Oh, and then Father, for those of us who have grown weary, shaky, tired, oh, Father, edify us, inspire us, fill us with grace and love for those who have given in. And may your church remain the pillar and buttress of the truth that you have called it to be. For it is only through that, that salvation will come, that freedom will come. And so then join us together as a church family, unified in love, empowered by your spirit to bring the truth of the gospel to those whom we love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. 
If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.